Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. It's good to be back with you on the podcast. August was a, a break month, so we are back now doing the podcast and plan to do regular episodes uh, through the end of the year. I'm hoping to, as I think about my schedule, I'm hoping to do a podcast from like September to May, so during the typical school year, and then take summers off. I found it to be very challenging to get in, record episodes make sure things were published regularly with all the vacations and travel and other stuff like that that accompanies the summertime. So hopefully this will be the beginning of a much more regular posting cycle. All right, enough of that. Enough business. What we are going to get to today is a result of the studies that I've been preaching at our church. We've been preaching through Genesis, the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 1 through 11. So looking at the creation story the flood narrative, and then the Table of Nations and the Tower of Babel. And this past Sunday, we uh, looked at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And in this particular passage is one of the most challenging passages of Scripture, one of the most challenging sections of Scripture for any expositor to have to deal with as they understand the book of Genesis. And that passage is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and it concerns these individuals who are named in the text, known as the sons of God, and then another group of individuals named in the text, known as the Nephilim. So I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at some of the different perspectives on the identification of who the sons of God might be, and overall, what the importance of this particular passage is to the Genesis narrative as a whole, and what benefit might it have had for national Israel who received it, and what benefit might it have for Christians today. All right, so we're going to do a deep dive into some theology, and then we're going to focus pretty strongly on some application. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay, now I'm not going to exegete all the things in this passage. If you want to hear the exegesis uh, and then the resultant sermon, you can go to YouTube and type, type in Grace Brethren Chapel, B-R-E-T-H-R-E-N, Grace Brethren Chapel, and the sermon that I preached on this is one of the most recent videos on our YouTube page, and it's called The Wickedness of Men. So I will refer you to that if you want to hear a discussion of the whole passage. 
in that particular sermon, though, I said that I was going to focus specifically on a on a Wednesday night and teach a lesson on this uh, corruption of mankind that came about from the relationship of the sons of God with the daughters of men, and present the four different perspectives on who these individuals are. So let's begin, all right? And I have to say, uh, as I begin, that you know, there's a lot of credit that needs to go to a lot of different people for the understanding of these views. Um, used uh, Dr. John Whitcomb's syllabus, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, from a Praetorium class that he taught, or a seminary-level class that he taught. Um, I took that class many years ago. Also referenced the book, The Genesis Flood, written by Dr. John Whitcomb and Dr. Henry Morris, the New American Commentary, um, some articles on AnswersInGenesis.org, uh, particularly an article written by Bodie Hodge, which presented a very concise summary of the identification of the sons of God. So I just want to name these individuals at the beginning, all of these sources I drew from to put this presentation together. So I want to give credit where credit is due. All right, the first view, and this is probably the most common historical view. So this has been, I should say, the most dominant historical view is that the fallen angels, uh, the, I'm sorry, is that the sons of God are fallen angels, all right? The sons of God in Genesis 6 are fallen angels, and these fallen angels had cohabitation with women, human women, and the result of their cohabitation, the result of their physical union, were these individuals known as the Nephilim. Okay, so a summary. The sons of God are either Satan or fallen angels who bred with human women, and the offspring were the Nephilim. So there was a mixed DNA that happened here. And the arguments that people use to support this particular perspective come from the book of Job. Now, in the book of Job, uh, this, the, the phrase sons of God are mentioned, or is mentioned, or is found multiple times. So, in Job chapter 38, verse 7, we see this. God is speaking to Job, and he says this, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And the sons of God there, most conservative quality commentators believe that that is a technical phrase for the angels who were created on day one. They watched God put all the creation together. And so here, sons of God, in Job 38, 7, refers to angels who were perfectly sinless at that time. The rebellion of Satan had not yet occurred, and also the fall of man had not yet occurred. And so all the angels here in Genesis, or in Job 38, 7, are called sons of God, and they were perfectly sinless. Also in the book of Job, you find this phrase, sons of God, used in Job chapter uh, 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So then scholars would say, 
Well, see, in Job, sons of God refers to angelic beings. Therefore, back in Genesis, sons of God should refer to angelic beings. Another argument is an interpretation of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following, and Jude chapter, or, um, Jude chapter 1, uh, there's no chapters in Jude, Jude 1, verses 6 and 7, where both Peter and Jude talk about angels committing some kind of grievous sin that resulted in them being punished before the final judgment. All right? Um, so these are the verses uh, that kind of lay out the fallen angel's view. So those are some of the arguments in favor of this particular perspective. Now, I think there, there are some real problems with this view, personally. I have some real problems with the fallen angel's view. The first is that sons of God, if it refers to angels who are perfect and sinless in Job 38, 7, uh, and would have to either only refer to angels who are perfect and sinless all the time, or the reader would have a hard time discerning, like, which, which angels these are. Are they fallen angels? Are they good angels? If in Job you have the sons of God referring to angels who are sinless in 38.7, then are they also sinless in 38, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 6, and 2, verse 1? Um, it seems very strange to use a phrase that would refer to sinless beings to also refer to sinful beings. All right, now, in the book of Job, we do find the use of the word angel, okay? And so I think for the sake of consistency, these sons of God have to be the same category of, of person or of being all throughout the book of Job, all right? So if they're sinless in Job, how do they all of a sudden become wicked when we go to Genesis chapter 6? All right, that, that's a real issue for me, all right? That's a, that's a, a, a difficulty that is hard to overcome. Now, in the New Testament, the word sons of God is a term that is used exclusively to describe godly men in the New Testament. All right, it's used five times. In Matthew chapter 5, the sons of God are those who will do what is righteous. In Luke 3.38, Adam is referred to the sons of God. In Romans 8.14 and Romans 8.19, Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, are referred to as sons of God. The same in Galatians 3.26. Now, I don't want to be totally anachronistic and read New Testament definitions back into Old Testament words, but it's, it's perplexing that the phrase sons of God is used only exclusively of believers in the New Testament, but then in the Old Testament, we're going to say that the sons of God is a technical term for angels, and not just angels uh, who are good, but angels who are both good and wicked. All right, so we, we have some, I think, gymnastics to do there linguistically to get to that point. Now, also in the Old Testament, we find similar phrases, um, sons of the Most High in Psalm 82.6 and sons of the living God found in Hosea 1.10 to refer to actual human beings. All right, so it's, it's not impossible. It's not like the Old Testament didn't know how to communicate that human beings could be called sons of God. It was totally appropriate in different textual situations to refer to human beings as sons of the Most High or sons of the living God. So 
I just think that using this phrase, sons of God, as a technical phrase to refer to fallen angels, I think that you have to make a bit of a intellectual jump there that may not be there. So I think it's a little bit of a leap. That's, that's my personal read on the situation. Now, let's just say that you do identify these sons of God as angels. We have another leap to make, okay? It remains a great mystery to understand how spiritual beings could cohabit with physical beings and then produce offspring. We know of, in the scriptures, only one time that that occurred, and that was with the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and the uh, production of that or the result of that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a miracle. It, it, was a, it is a miraculous conception that resulted in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only recorded instance in Scripture of a spiritual being cohabiting with a physical being. And, and I don't think the cohabitation was like we think of cohabitation. It wasn't like a sexual union. It was the miraculous conception in the womb of the Spirit of God joining together uh, joining together a, a, a sperm or a seed with the egg of, of Mary, and the result of that was the virgin birth. And, and that's another topic. We'll, we'll discuss that maybe another time. But that's the only recorded time in the, in the scriptures that the spiritual comes together with the physical and has an offspring. So we need to have a very big assumption that there are spiritual beings who can cohabit with physical beings and have children. I know that there are situations in the Old Testament, like Genesis chapter 18, where you see physical beings, or I'm sorry, spirit beings, appear as physical men, so the two angels who came with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, they ate food, okay? They appeared as men. But, all right, it's, a, it's another leap to go from they appeared as men and consumed food to they were able to have sexual relations with women and then have offspring with them. To me, this violates the reproductive order that God established at creation, that everything reproduces after its own kind, okay? The cattle reproduces after their kind. The creeping things reproduce after their kind. The birds reproduce after their kind. The fish reproduce after their kind. Human beings reproduce after their kind. In this situation, we're, if you hold to this fallen angel's view, you would be saying, okay, you would be saying that it's possible for beings to reproduce not after their kind, because an angel kind is not the same as a human kind. All right, that's a big leap. That's a really big leap. And so I find this particular view to be lacking because of the leap that you have to make in order to come to that conclusion that spirit beings and physical beings can cohabit and produce offspring. Now, the final uh, point of opposition to this particular view is that the Nephilim are present on the earth after the flood, all right? And, you know, if we're going to go back to the New Testament passages— back to 2 Peter and back to Jude, both 2 Peter and Jude make it clear that the angels who sinned were locked up, all right? But we have, we have the Nephilim appearing on the earth after the flood. So what's true? Were the angels actually locked up, 
Whereas not all of the angels locked up, or maybe the Nephilim weren't actually the offspring of humans and angel relationships, okay? So those are some arguments in opposition to this particular view. And I have to say, you know, this is, or for many centuries, was the most common view. So we can't just dismiss the weight of history. We need uh, a lot of study. We need to be very careful and discerning as we identify uh, or, or if we choose to reject this particular view, okay? Again, though, just because something has a long history doesn't mean that it's uh, appropriate or theologically accurate. We just need to consider it, all right? We just need to consider it. All right, so ne- next we're going to look at the fallen angels overtook men view, okay? And this has many similarities to the first view. It identifies the sons of God as fallen angels, but this view is a little bit different in that it says these fallen angels overtook or possessed human men, and the offspring were 100% human. So this actually deals with a couple of the the negatives from the other situation. It deals with the fact that, you know, humans have to reproduce according to kind. And if the fallen angels possess the bodies of men then they would be not reproducing according to different kinds. They would be reproducing according to kinds. One of the arguments in favor of this view is that there are numerous examples of demon possession in the Scriptures. Okay, In Luke chapter 22-3, Satan famously enters Judas and induces him to uh, sin against Jesus by betraying him. Uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, there's the man who's possessed by demons, and these demons are known as legion. He was capable of doing superhuman feats of strength. Uh, so in some way, the demons empowered him in a special way. Now, the situation in Genesis chapter 6, looking back to the context of that, that chapter, is that men were exceedingly wicked, Okay. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And men would have therefore demonstrated their wickedness by inviting these demons to possess them and by having uh, the relationships with these particular women. And then the offspring, again, would be these Nephilim, and they would have been, let's say, a unique genetic line because of how the demons empowered the men, right? That, that's, that's the argument here for the fallen angels overtook men view. And so it shares some similarities with the previous view, and it also answers some of the, the challenges. One of the challenges it doesn't answer is um, if these sons of God, okay, if these sons of God were uh, fallen men, or fallen angels, we still have the problem of sons of God being identified as righteous, sinless angels in Job, and now all of a sudden they're, they're wicked in Genesis chapter 6. That just doesn't seem to fit with how that phrase is used throughout the rest of Scripture, okay? A second problem with this is if you go to the New Testament and you look again at Second Peter and you look at Jude, and you say, well, these angels were imprisoned. The question that you have to ask is, if these angels possessed men and 
took women as wives and had children with them, all right, and the offspring were the Nephilim, and they were all destroyed during the time of the flood, and the angels who did this were imprisoned, how do we then get the Nephilim appearing again after the flood? You see, it's going to be very difficult to get the Nephilim to appear again after the flood if these angels were put into prison, okay? Furthermore, if we just say, well, it it could be the result of any generic demon possession, why don't we see the Nephilim today? You know, are demons still around today? Absolutely, I believe they are. I believe that we're doing spiritual warfare on a regular basis. And so why don't we see the Nephilim today? All right? Um, this is a this is a problem, okay, with, with this particular view. It's one of the weaknesses of the view, okay? And, and let me just say this. Each of these views has strengths. Each of these views has weaknesses. Each of these views, you kind of have to make some conjecture about the identification of the various parts because, okay, because you know what? We don't know for sure. I do know this, that Moses knew what he was intending to communicate, and ancient Israel knew what Moses was intending to communicate. The original audience, who were much closer to this period in time than we are, knew exactly what was intended to be communicated. And so we need to just be patient with one another, We can't be dogmatic about any of these positions, all right? And so, as we continue to look at the last two positions, just understand that you can hold to a different position, and you can still serve together in the same church. You can fellowship. This is not a matter of doctrinal salvation. Um, This is a matter of identification of one of the most challenging aspects of Old Testament theology. Okay, so now we're going to move from the the two views that identify the sons of God as angels and the Nephilim as the offspring of these angel-human relationships, okay, however that works out. We're going to move from that particular perspective to the perspective of the sons of God being identified as human beings, okay? Human beings who were of a particular spiritual nature. They were believers. They were men who walked with Yahweh, who had faith in Yahweh. And this takes us to what I would say is the second most common view throughout history, and that is the Sethite view. All right, so the summary of this view is as follows. The sons of God are the godly men who are named in the lineage, in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, from Adam to Noah. These men sinned, okay, by taking wives from the line of Cain, and their children fell away from serving Yahweh. Now, this particular view views the sons of God as the godly men who are named in Genesis chapter 5, okay? So you have Adam, then you have Seth, then you have Enosh, then you have Kenan, then you have Mahalel, then you have uh, Jared, then you have Enoch, and so forth and so on. And this is the line of Seth. This is actually the line that this, the promised Redeemer comes through. All right, so if we go to Luke and we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we find the names in, in Genesis chapter 5 as being the names also 
found in the line of the genealogy of Jesus. And so this particular view fits the context well. And it fits the context well because we're talking about men, all right? Verse 1, men began to multiply on the face of the land. Daughters were born to men. The daughters of men were beautiful. Uh, Then down in verse 5, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So we see over and over and over in this passage that the narrative is focused on human beings, men, mankind. And so identifying the sons of God as a particular sect or branch of mankind seems to make a lot of contextual sense. All right. Now, another argument in favor of this position is that the Hebrew word Nephilim is related to the Hebrew word verb to fall. Okay. It's the word Nephilim is actually a transliteration. In in other words, the translators brought the Hebrew word straight into English. They just used the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew vowels, and they created a new English word instead of translating the word, uh, because there really isn't a direct translation of this word. The word is related to the Hebrew verb to fall, but this isn't quite the appropriate noun form of that, all right? And I'm not going to get into a deep dive on Hebrew, but this is this is what uh, one of the arguments in favor of it. It's related, and so you could say that the, the Nephilim should be properly identified as the fallen ones, the ones who fell away from walking with God, all right? And this would make sense, okay, in the context. This would make sense in that one of the problems that God saw on the earth at the time of Genesis 6 is a worldwide wickedness. It was a worldwide wickedness. And God had a remnant. We know that throughout the history of the scriptures, God always keeps a remnant. But it appears that the remnant whom God had kept had even disobeyed him by taking wives who were of the line of Cain. They would have been unbelievers. So they would have been unbelieving women, and they took them indiscriminately. Okay, They they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Verse 2 describes a very lustful action or a very lustful attitude on the part of these sons of God. And so instead of waiting for God to bring about a righteous woman, a God-fearing woman, who could have uh, been equally yoked in marriage, okay, spiritually yoked. This is what I'm talking about, spiritually yoked. They just took the beautiful woman, the woman that they lusted after, and you know what happens? What does God warn about when you have a mixed religious marriage? What does God warn about? That the heart will be turned away from serving Yahweh. All right, so that is kind of the Sethite view. Now, there are a couple problems with this view, all right? It assumes that every man from the Genesis 5 lineage was a godly man who feared Yahweh. Now, the text only says for sure that three of them did. Seth, who walked with God, Enoch, who walked with God, and Noah, who walked with God. 
And then we come to the challenge of, okay, well, after the flood, everybody was a Sethite because Noah, who was a Sethite, was the father of all the, the nations who came after the flood. So in Numbers 13, 33, when we see the, the Nephilim here on the earth, um, were they also, they had to have been from the Sethite line, all right? And these were not related at all to a godly remnant of people. Okay, so th- those are some, some challenges that the Sethite view has to contend with. I think that those challenges, personally, are less, less of a leap to deal with than the challenges with either of the fallen angels' views, okay? Now, finally, this is the, uh, I, th- I would say, maybe a more recent view, uh, historically speaking, the the more recent view is just the fallen men view, which is similar to the Sethite view in that it says that godly men of the time married ungodly women. So again, the focus is on a mixed religious marriage, and their offspring, the Nephilim, fell away from Yahweh. In this view, and in in this view, the Sethite view and the fallen angels overtook men view, the descendants, the Nephilim, were 100% human, okay? So here's some arguments in favor. Sons of God commonly refers to godly human beings in the scripture. And the Nephilim were the natural-born descendants of the sons of God, who are humans, and the daughters of men, who were also humans. And they would have been in existence pre and post flood why is this because the nephilim were a particular genetic branch of adam's dna the nephilim were uh, they had some interesting and unique genetic features numbers 32 or numbers 13 32 and 33 records for us that they were giants in size now uh, genesis chapter 4 talks about them being um, mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It could, it could also communicate the fact, those, those phrases could communicate the fact that they were giants and well-known. And they would have been well-known not just for their size, but they would have been well-known for their, their violence, their hatred towards God. Okay, um, So in this view, there is no need for every one of Seth's descendants in Genesis 5 to be believers. And also in favor of this view is that you have a consistent use of the word men in verse 1 and verse 2. So we have, men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Okay, so it could be men in this situation is referring to mankind in general, and then men who, you know, are just non-believers, which makes a lot of sense, okay? That, that works. You can, you can easily square those things. And then sons of God would be godly people, people who feared Yahweh, who then took ungodly women to be their wives. Again, the focus is on the lust of these men. The focus is on the, the, focus is on the attitude that they had of wanting to please their eyes, wanting to please their own sinful desires. And so they were not acting righteously, even though they may have been righteous men. In this 
instance, they were not acting righteously. And we see that commonly throughout the scriptures. We see, like, um, for example, King David lusting with his eyes over Bathsheba, and he does not act righteously in accord with his lust. He does not put his lust to death. Rather, he chooses to act upon his lust, okay? Now, there are a couple of problems with this particular view as well, all right? How do you deal with the sin of the angels in Jude 6 and 7 and 2 Peter 2, 4 and following? How do you deal with that? Okay, well, you could say that there are other sins that angels may have committed, such as Peter and Jude could be referring to the general rebellion of the angels that occurred when Satan led a rebellion out of heaven. So that's one way to deal with the rebellion or the sin of the angels. And Peter and Jude's overarching point that I think cannot go overlooked is that unrighteousness and wickedness will be punished by God, whether it is the unrighteousness of angels, the unrighteousness of the people who lived in Noah's day, or the unrighteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah, the other example that is cited, God will punish unrighteousness and wickedness. Now, I think another question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, if these godly, if the sons of God were godly men, and they married women who were ungodly, unbelievers, um, what about situations like that where, where that may occur today? Are the children then of all godly men who don't follow Yahweh, Nephilim? Should we, should we be considering that every child who does not grow up to share the faith of his father is a Nephilim, a fallen one? See, I, I think that that's, that's a good question, and um, it, it speaks to the sovereignty of God in election and predestination. And so it's a challenging, it's a challenging thing to kind of think through that, and I, I personally don't think that all the children— of godly men who turn away from Yahweh, who turn away from the faith of their fathers, are to be considered Nephilim. Okay then, so what shall we say in summary? Each of these views um, has some issues. No view is perfect. None of these views is perfect. Each view has some issues. I personally lean more towards the Sethite view uh, or the fallen men view. I, I would say probably, I probably hold more to the Sethite view than I would to any of the other views, um, maybe like 85 to 90 percent there. The fallen men view, I think, is very similar to the Sethite view, uh, but I think that, I, I personally believe that in Genesis chapter 5, every one of those men who are named are believers. When you look at the genealogy of Christ, every person in the genealogy was a believer in Yahweh. There's no way to get around that. Um, and and so I, I just think that the Sethite view makes the most sense, okay? And this is what I'm saying even after when I preached about six days ago. You know, I said the fallen men view makes the most sense. I do think that the identification of the sons of God as godly human beings, godly human men, is the right identification of the sons of God. Now, interestingly... Verse 4 talks about the Nephilim being on the earth in those days. It doesn't necessarily say that the Nephilim were the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men. It doesn't necessarily say that. Notice what the text says. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So before the flood and also afterward, after the flood. So we get before Genesis 6, after Numbers 13. Then we also have this little word, when, okay, that appears in the text, and it could be taken as an adverb or a conjunction. And this verb, when, really is a, is a verb, or a, I'm sorry, an adverb or a conjunction that gives us a time reference. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days at the same time as the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Okay, so it's possible to just say the Nephilim are not related at all to the relationship that the sons of God had with the daughters of men. They were not related at all. They were just a genetic strand of Adam's family tree, a particular genetic strand where the dominant gene was expressed and they were giants, and they were on the earth at the same time that the sons of God made bad choices in their marriage and married ungodly women. It's, it's entirely possible to take that view. And if you identify, if you don't identify the Nephilim as the children of the sons of God and the marriages that they had with the daughters of men, then you also kind of over, you, you, you deal with a number of issues at the same time. And the more I think about it, the more that might be the actual better way to understand who the Nephilim were. They are named in this passage to identify something that was happening on the earth at that time. But the Nephilim themselves were not specifically the sons or the, the children of the relationship of the sons of God and the daughters of women, or the daughters of men. Now, what's the, okay, so what's the major takeaway? We look at these four views, a lot of theology here, a lot of deep dive, and we could, we could spend a lot more time talking about these things in depth. What's the overarching takeaway? Moses, in writing this, was warning national Israel against the, the dangers of mixed religious marriages. So God had prohibited in the law the Israelites from marrying Canaanites, Amorites, Philistines, Amalekites. He said, don't marry somebody who is not also an Israelite because that person will turn your heart away from serving Yahweh your God and you will serve their gods. That's the big warning here. And I think that is one of the contributing factors to the wickedness of men on earth, that these godly men took wives who were ungodly and their hearts were turned away from serving Yahweh. Now, does this mean they were unbelievers? No, I don't think so. I mean, look at the situation of Solomon. We have an example of this in Scripture. King Solomon started out so well, started out in such high regard, obeyed the Lord, but he violated the principle of not having mixed religious marriages. And he multiplied wives for himself, multiplied wives for himself from foreign nations, and those wives turned his heart away from serving Yahweh. And so Solomon lived many years in a state of kind of indifference to obedience to Yahweh. And I think that's what happened to these godly men. These godly men 
they multiplied wives to themselves. Maybe, maybe they took more than one wife. Maybe they perverted God's original design. We don't know exactly how it happened, but it's very clear that the warning here is against mixed religious marriages. And so if, if you're listening to this today, and you're like, well, I'm not an Israelite, I'm not a Canaanite, you know, well, are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, then you should not be yoked, you should not be married to somebody who is a non-Christian. That is the main takeaway. If you purposefully marry somebody who is a non-Christian, that will cause problems in your life. That's the primary application of this passage. That's the primary warning. Look at what happens. Your ungodly spouse will turn your heart away from serving Yahweh. You don't want that to happen. You do not want that to happen. Okay? So I think that as you consider the, as you consider the, the challenges of interpreting and identifying who the sons of God are and who the Nephilim are, don't lose the main point for the details. The main point is, do not have mixed religious marriages. You cannot combine two religions together in a marriage. That's two different worldviews. It will never work. It will never work. Well, I hope that you've been blessed through the study that we've put forth today. Again, if you want to hear the full sermon, I would encourage you to go to YouTube and check out our church, Grace Brethren Chapel. Find the sermon there. Listen to that. Listen to this. Comment. Leave me a note. Write me if you have any additional questions or thoughts on this. This has been a fruitful study. It's always good to just get in the scriptures and have yourself sharpened by the Word of God. And once again, it's okay to not agree on everything. This is not an issue that is cause for disfellowship, okay? We can respectfully disagree and still fellowship together. Thank you for your time today. God bless you as you seek to serve Christ.